Hello there, I'm Toby Haydock, and I have come to believe many things which I previously doubted. Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about being silly and brave when others are being cruel and cowardly. Whether you're discovering the episodes for the very first time, or you know your genuflecting flunkies from your defecating monkeys, then you're extremely welcome to this odyssey behind the scenes, which aims to go through the series one episode at a time. In this edition, it's an instalment that features some well-rendered character manoeuvring, a comedy reveal, and, not for the first time this story, a last-minute reduction in the Doctor's contribution. So join me as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, Mighty Kubla Khan, or Kubla Khan't more like, first broadcast on the 28th of March 1964 at 5.30pm. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman, with guest stars Mark Eden as Marco Polo and Darren Nesbitt as Tigana. It was written by John Lucarotti, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Warris Hussain. It was watched by 8.4 million people, and the audience appreciation was 59. Tigana prevents the TARDIS crew from escaping, and Ian tries to persuade Marco that the TARDIS travels in time. The Venetian, though, does not believe the teacher, having cleverly ensnared him into revealing his previous lies about the TARDIS key. Ping Cho tries to return home, and so Ian goes back to find her, whilst the caravans head to Shang Tu at the palace of Kubla Khan, who, rather than being a fearsome warrior, is now a gout-ridden old man who therefore warms to a similarly afflicted doctor. Kuichu the bandit has stolen the TARDIS and Ping Cho's money, so Ian resolves to confront him, little knowing that another enemy's plans are about to reach fruition. The Wen 9th of January, 1964. Val Speyer, Verity Lambert's secretary, sends out a memo confirming that Richard Martin, initially down to direct Mighty Kubla Khan, as well as The Wall of Lies, will not now be doing so. Instead, Warris Hussain will do the whole serial. Of course, he doesn't ultimately do that fourth episode, as has been covered in too much information in an earlier episode. But he remains in place for this week's. 16th of January, 1964. The parchment map sequences, augmented by Marco's diary entries, are filmed today. The last of these feature in Mighty Kubla Khan. They have been an essential part of the story, detailing Marco's journey to Cathay, but they do not feature in next week's instalment, as the journey is essentially over. Calligrapher John Woodcock's work on the story, therefore, ends with the last of these diary entry sequences that are all filmed today, with his hand standing in for Eden's to carry out the elegant lettering required as per the previous five episodes. For his contribution to the serial, he receives a fee of 18 guineas. His work takes around two and a half hours to complete, and he is done by midday. In the original scripts, the two narrated sequences actually belong to Ian and Barbara, respectively, but, and with the odd necessary dialogue tweak to accommodate this change, they are, as with all of the other narration sequences earlier in the story, given to Polo instead. And Mark Eden records all of his audio for the diary entries this afternoon. Apart from these sequences, there is no other film work in Mighty Kubla Khan. Previous episodes have augmented the map sequences with montages of caravans and bearers mixed into them, but this does not happen here, apart from perhaps a shot of the moving wheel of a cart, if the telesnaps do not deceive us. 19th of February. 
pre-production for the episode is well underway, happening in conjunction with the making of the rest of the serial. Today, Violet Leon attends her costume fitting for both of her non-speaking roles in this episode. Leon has a tangential but not undelightful connection with the show in that her yet-to-be-born great-nephew, Peter Ware, will one day be the long-running assistant editor of Doctor Who magazine. Great Auntie Vi, according to Peter, recalled that, contrary to received wisdom about the leading man, especially with regard to people of colour, William Hartnell was a real gentleman. Her memories of Quidju's monkey, though, were as bad as everyone else's. 24th of February. Peter Lawrence, cast as the vizier, and Basil Tang, cast as the old man, later office foreman, attend costume fittings with costume designer Daphne Dare. Some of the male extras do so as well, but none of them will ever be related to anyone who works for Doctor Who magazine, so we don't need to worry about them too much. 2nd of March. Rehearsals begin for Mighty Kubla Khan, with Czech actor Martin Miller joining the cast to play the episode's title role, as everyone goes through their paces at the Drill Hall at 239 Uxbridge Road until Thursday the 5th. Unfortunately, William Hartnell is only available on the latter day, the last day of rehearsals, having had a relapse of the flu that knocked him out of the rehearsal period of The Singing Sands and minimised his involvement in that instalment. Warris Hussain worries that Hartnell's anger during the turbulent making of this serial, with late script changes occurring all too often, has contributed to the return of his illness. During this rehearsal week, publicity photographs are taken of Jacqueline Hill. The original cast cards of her three co-stars show them in a dishevelled state from the filming of The Firemaker, but the one of her does not, so presumably she has objected to any shots from that session being used, and this call has been convened to provide cover for that anomaly. 6th of March. Mighty Kubla Khan is recorded at Studio D Lime Grove. Camera rehearsals begin at 10.30, but it's not long before there's a problem. At 10.55am, Mark Eden, playing Marco Polo, is hurt. When he enters a set, his right hand is caught by a dagger being waved about by co-star Darren Nesbitt, resulting in a laceration. A nurse is called to the studio, but the injury is declared to be trifling and no further action is taken. In the afternoon, a photo call is mounted during the tea break between 3.45pm and 4.15pm. The Radio Times is on hand to snap away as Tigana grabs a terrified Susan and the Doctor meets the Khan, capturing a number of images used in publications many times over the years and doubtless very familiar to listeners. Come the evening recording session, and before work can begin on this week's episode, the end sequence of Rider from Shang Tu is redone at the start of proceedings. For reasons unknown but speculated about when the previous instalment of Too Much Information was recorded, but since cleared up by a peek at Warris Hussain's diaries, which reveal that it is because Sidney Newman declares the knife to Susan's throat at the end of the episode to be too much. See? Even as we think we've gathered all the information out there, new sources come to light that make any attempt to be definitive a fruitless task. Still, we do what we do with what is available at the time, so bear that in mind, listeners from far in the future, or the way things have been going, listeners from next week. Newman is under attack from all sides. The uncompromising Canadian has made enemies inside and outside of the corporation, so he doesn't want this new series of his giving his critics any excuse to lay into him any further. And so he's keeping a very close eye on Doctor Who. As a result, the recording of Mighty Kubla Khan is rather a tense affair, and one that involves a number of retakes. The strained nature of the recording is due not only to Hartnell's absence during the week, but the rewrites generated by it, and other factors, including a scene between Marco Polo and Tigana, which Nesbitt then makes a hash of during recording, but which is saved due to the quick thinking and improvisational flair of Mark Eden. Hussain is also slightly frustrated with the pace of Nesbitt's performance, which he thinks has got even slower as the weeks have progressed. Verity Lambert is in the director's box with Hussain and changes shots on the fly, leaving the director not entirely happy with the session or his producer. 20th of March. The Doctor Who team is informed that the programme, beginning with Mighty Kublai Khan, will be shifted to a 5.30pm slot, 
preceded by the Telegoons and followed by Jukebox Jury. 25th of March. A number of newspapers preview the episode with a picture from the Susan Tigana photo call in their look-aheads to the weekend's television, with the picture used prolifically and in many regions throughout the week. 28th of March, 1964. The Bradford Telegraph publishes its version of Elsie M. Smith's meeting with writer John Lucarotti, with the lengthy article and profile, covered in our previous instalment, this time entitled Writing for Children, Good Discipline for Creator of Doctor Who, which probably annoys Sidney Newman. The period has always fascinated me, says the author about the subject matter of Marco Polo. The South Shield Gazette entitles its version of this article He dreams up new adventures for Doctor Who in a much more Newman-friendly headline. Mighty Kubla Khan is broadcast on BBC television with the series slightly shifted in the time slot to later in the evening so for the first time it is broadcast at 5.30pm 15 minutes after it has previously gone to air. 29th of March the day after broadcast, the BBC collates an audience research report on programmes shown this week and over the five preceding it. Among the many responses are a Mrs Elsie Richards of Swansea who declares that The most popular children's programme in this area is definitely Doctor Who. Mrs D.I. Sisley of London says that Doctor Who is also proving very popular with children in the 8 to 11 age group. Mrs J.T. Monks of Bolton I have been interviewing children now for 18 months and never before have so many children been thrilled and impressed by any programme as much as by Doctor Who. Mrs N Brown of Rochdale reports that Doctor Who's a firm favourite, even with the youngest group. Whilst Mrs Y Dixon of Worcester says Both parents and children all seem to watch and enjoy Doctor Who. Mrs B Heaton from near Wigan says Doctor Who seems to be a great favourite, apart from one or two of the younger children who find it quite frightening. Whilst Mrs L.B. Jobson from North Wembley says... Doctor Who is either intensely liked or disliked, as the case may be. An alarm is sounded by Mrs L. Garrett of Newcastle. Doctor Who is falling off in popularity with the smaller children. I think it's since the Daleks disappeared. And for Mrs B.M. Stevens of Stockport... Doctor Who was very popular. This was mentioned at most houses, even if the children didn't like it. Mrs D.L. Johnson of Thornton Heath addresses this story in particular. Children are very keen on Doctor Who, but they prefer it to take place on other planets. They're rather bored with Marco Polo. They like science fiction type best. They think Marco Polo too long and drawn out. And Mrs J.E. Vince of Solihull concurs. Several children and parents have said they prefer Doctor Who to look into the future rather than the past. Marco Polo's parade continues to be rained on by Mrs J L Evans of Purley. In Doctor Who, the punch and excitement of the Dalek period has given away to more boring details of maps and commentary. So the suspense is gone. And Mrs R E Pawson of Grimsby is no help either. One little boy said he'd gone off Doctor Who now that the Daleks had gone. The bug-eyed monsters so hated by Rethian populist Sidney Newman continue to show that you can never trust the British public, especially not Mrs M Robinson of Glasgow. Doctor Who's not so good since the Daleks were taken off. And Mrs A M Murphy of York has assembled a posse. Quite a number, about 12 parents, expressed their dislike of Doctor Who. In fact, two professional class fathers thought it was a bad and pernicious programme for the BBC to be putting out. The BBC do keep putting it out, of course, but the comments might help to explain why the historical adventures are consigned to being only a very early part of Doctor Who's own history. 3rd of April. The Warwick Advertiser reports that Form 2 of Lapworth School have produced a journal, The Giraffe, in which they list their favourite programmes. Doctor Who is among them. The What? It's another long episode, Mighty Kubla Khan, clocking in at 25 minutes and 36 seconds. That's over three minutes more incident than 500 eyes three weeks ago. Despite the re-recording of last week's cliffhanger at the beginning of the session, the camera script suggests that the reprise is played in from Telecine, and so is actually what was recorded last week. Now, this could be a mistake, 
overridden by the restaging, or it could be that the action is played in but fades before the knife to the throat that caused so much trouble when Sidney Newman saw it. If so, it would be a repeat of a similar situation with the end of the first episode of The Dalek Story, where the recap is a telecine of a sequence that wasn't actually broadcast a week earlier. There are quite a few changes to the script between rehearsal and performance. The very first planned scene, with Marco in his bedroom realising that the key has been stolen, is cut. Then the scene in the TARDIS, in which the Doctor is angry with Susan and Ian resolves to exit and find her, is dropped completely in order to save having to erect the whole ship interior in an already packed studio for just one short scene. The next very short scene, of Polo racing into the courtyard as Ping Cho hides away, is also dropped before recording. The episode title and writer captions are superimposed over a shot of the ship, which the script says is alive and ready to go. To emphasise this, the TARDIS hum is very loud here, to act as a backing for the title cards too, despite the fact that we are outside the ship and never enter it. The ship hum fades when the Doctor and Barbara exit the TARDIS. Tell that man to take his hands off my grandchild, says the Doctor. A change from the camera scripts, tell him to let Susan go. There is a scheduled recording break almost immediately when the action cuts from the studio after scene 1A in the stables. When Marco tells the crew that the next day the TARDIS will belong to the Khan and so any wrangling will be at an end. Into the filmed sequence of the parchment map. Hartnell is absent from the next scene, which was not part of the plan originally. As with the Singing Sands, the unwell lead actor's contribution to the episode has been truncated due to him being poorly enough to miss the first three days of rehearsal. He was originally to feature heavily in this scene, what is ultimately the episode's second scene, set in the inn. Oh, for the invincibility of youth! Well, let age have its say. We're beaten. Nothing we can do can prevent TARDIS falling into Kubla Khan's hands, he was to say angrily. And before that happens, I'd sooner die, which is what I probably will do on that horse tomorrow. He then appears to acquiesce to Barbara's suggestion that he take a hot bath. As he is not ultimately in the scene at all, we will have to wait until the end of the season and episode three of The Reign of Terror before the first mention of a bath in Doctor Who. This scene is therefore rejigged to reinstate a lot of the scene's dialogue between Ian and Marco. Perhaps as a result, Mark Eden and William Russell's exchange here, which was chopped and changed a lot during the week, has minor differences from what is written down in almost every line. One worth noting is that on screen, William Russell refers to the TARDIS, whereas in the script there is no definite article. The writers still seem to prefer to leave out the the, but the actors seem to keep putting it in. The big speech Eden has about the many strange things that Marco has seen on his travels, including coal and flying fish, which had been in the draft but subsequently dropped, is in the episode, even though it is not in the camera script. This is because the episode has been underrunning and needs gaps filling due in part to Hartnell's reduced role. This does ultimately save some of the more poetic and appealing dialogue that these men have, so every cloud has a silver lining. The actors have to master these changes very quickly as they are hastily camera plotted very late in the day. And then the episode ends up being overlong too, so perhaps they shouldn't have been put back in but it's very nice that they're there. There is a second recording break at the end of the short third scene in which Ping Cho makes her exit at night in Susan's room in order to relight all of the sets for daytime. In the scene, scene four, in the inn in which Ian offers to go back for Ping Cho, Marco's line to an attendant about getting a horse and provisions is a very late addition. Eden really is dealing with some last-minute changes throughout this episode. In the courtyard scene, scene 5, with Ping Cho being welcomed by Wang Lo, there is a library track, which is not part of the musical score composed by Tristram Carey, called The Merry Old Gentleman's Song. 
composed by Louis P.T. Chen, it can be heard from the beginning of the scene. It also featured last week. Much of Wang Lo's opening speech is ad-libbed. This is actually at the suggestion of the script, which hasn't given him anything to say beyond the first couple of lines of dialogue and actually says, general ad-lib here, which, frankly, is a bit of a liberty. Thankfully, colourful character actor Gabor Baraka is not one to be phased by such a request. This is quite a complex episode to stage and requires all the ingenuity of designer Barry Newbury. For example, the two inns, the first in scenes two and four, and the second much later in the episode, are the same set, redressed. This redressing necessitates the third and another very early recording break, which comes now, after scene five in the courtyard, when Quichu has taken Ping Cho's money. When asked by Ian why she has run away, the sole reason given by Ping Cho was to have been her arranged marriage, but between script and performance, Xenia Merton has added her taking of the key to Ping Cho's motivation for her egress. Originally, Wang Lo was to go off to get the document with authorization to take the TARDIS, but instead he has it handily about his person, and so doesn't have to hold up the action by disappearing off, getting it, and coming back again. The office foreman, played by Basil Tang, is referred to in the script as Old Man. Tang is originally down to appear in non-speaking roles in episodes 1 and 3, but is replaced by Clem Choi on both occasions. Tang will return to Doctor Who in The Faceless Ones, The Mind of Evil and Day of the Daleks, but never troubles the credits again, nor is he trusted with any lines hereafter. It's not hard to see why. It looks like Ian was to have an exchange with this character, he turns to the old man, but the page is blanked out until his exclamation that the TARDIS has been stolen. It may be that they decided to give this character as little to say as possible. Again, it's not hard to see why. There is no recording break before or after the next narration telecine, which is to be the last example of these in the serial. Farewell, Marco's Map and Diary. It's been nice having you. There's a bit of a stumble at the beginning of the Marco-Tigana argument, and whether by accident or design, Marco loses his line in which he says, My caravan has been beset from the outset, a pattern of delays and diversions. Nesbitt isn't hugely in control of his lines here either, stumbling about his words regarding Ian and Ping Cho. In fact, he isn't supposed to refer to the teacher by name at all, but does so twice. Here and there, though, he colloquialises the dialogue or makes it more conversational. So often, it seems like his straying from the script might be a deliberate policy. In the courtyard scene, Ping Cho's dialogue about Karakorum being the former capital of the Mongol Empire, explaining that it was tents rather than buildings, provides some fascinating historical insight as well as a useful story beat, and is inspired by some information found in the real Marco Polo memoirs. There is a fourth recording break after Ian and Ping Cho have discussed the TARDIS being spirited away along the old road to Karakorum. In the script, Ping Cho refers to it as the caravan, but she calls the TARDIS by its proper name in the actual episode. The throne room of Kublai Khan is in Shangtu, referred to but not seen in last week's instalment. Shangtu is, of course, otherwise known as Xanadu, where Kublai Khan did a stately pleasure dome decree. And here he is, in his throne room. The main set of the episode is Kublai Khan's royal seat and is 40 feet long and 28 feet wide and can be covered by all four cameras hard at work capturing the episode's action. Large windows look out onto a painted backcloth and the Khan's throne area is a raised two-foot platform. As for the Khan himself, the central gag of the episode is that its title is at absolute odds with the story's presentation of this great figure. Mighty Kublai Khan is, in fact, a fussy, wizened, small old man. As John Lucarotti said in that interview with Elaine M. Smith, For instance, one might have expected the world-dominating Kublai Khan to be an impressive figure, but in fact he was a small, gout-ridden little man, and we presented him as such. The big challenge for me was getting kids interested and, at the same time, slipping into the action some knowledge they may not have had before. 
Writing for children is also very good discipline. You can fool adults with things you would never get away with with children. Well, he may well have got away with giving away the comedy reveal of this week's episode, as the interview is out before it airs. Now, in the 21st century, that would definitely veer into spoiler territory and might well have set the internet alight. Lucarotti claims later that the gag about the Khan had been inspired by the performance of the actor who had played the role in his Canadian radio version of the Marco Polo story. The Khan has a spittoon bearer, played by diminutive actor Harry Dillon, the first performer of restricted height to appear in Doctor Who. This non-speaking character is not in Lucarotti's scripts, but he is an addition bred in the mind of director Waris Hussain. The Doctor's first line of dialogue in this scene, on page 25 of the script, is the first thing he has said in this episode since his small amount of dialogue on pages 2 and 3. When telling Marco that just one of the 10,000 white horses Kublai Khan has will be enough for him, the Doctor's stroppy red, white or blue is an addition by Hartnell, and a very good one. He was also to say, I'll break my back if I do, when told to kowtow or forfeit his life, but Hartnell instead says, Well, if it breaks my back, then he could take all of me, so why waste time on small items? Which sort of makes sense. What doesn't make sense, though, is when he tells the Khan, I'm far from unwell, when actually he means the opposite. And so does the script. But let's remember, he only had one day rehearsal. The doctor says he is not a doctor of medicine the second time thus far in the series that he has explained this. The first was in The Forest of Fear, episode 3 of the first story, in a line not in Lucarotti's script, so presumably this re-emphasising of the Doctor's lack of medical prowess comes from Hartnell and or David Whittaker. After the two old men have hobbled out and Marco has spoken to Barbara and Susan, there is yet another recording break, the episode's fifth that's a lot, before work starts on the scene with Ian and Ping Cho. The jungle set here is backed by a 50-foot black gauze that was previously used in the Wall of Lies. There is a practical fire in the middle of it, and real plants are used, nestling in beds which are obscured or blended into the grass-matted floor. Bamboos and rhododendrons provide most of the foliage. With the TARDIS prop required early in the episode, to be seen at the stables, and in close-up for the title caption, it is too big a job to move it or have a duplicate prop built, and so a money-saving photo blow-up is used to represent the stolen timeship in this latter sequence. Once again, William Russell refers to it as THE TARDIS in contravention of the scripted words. Although mighty Kublai Khan no longer exists, as with all the episodes bar the Wall of Lies, on account of it being directed by John Crockett, we do have telesnaps, which were purchased and kept by director Waris Hussain. In addition, two off-screen photographs of this episode were taken by a fan from a screening in Australia. One of these, a close-up of Barbara, by coincidence almost entirely matches one of John Cura's captures. Mighty Kublai Khan has been a tricky record, and according to eyewitnesses, including Auntie Vi, Kuchu's monkey is no better behaved this week than he was last. The Who Darren Nesbitt Darren Nesbitt, who plays the villain Tigana in all seven episodes of Marco Polo, was born Darren Michael Horwitz on the 19th of June 1935, the son of Harry Nesbitt, of Max and Harry Nesbitt, a well-known variety and musical outfit who played the music halls throughout the land. Indeed, Harry was performing on stage at the Finsbury Park Empire as Derren was being born underneath it. And that was only the beginning. I crawled on the stage of a Max Miller show, aged one, he later claimed. Nesbitt, despite his showbiz background and blood, actress Sylvia Sidney and one of the Three Stooges were apparently distant relatives. He took no part in theatricals, even though he accompanied his father on a tour of Australia, until deciding to train professionally as an actor at the age of 18. 
He trained with Aida Foster and then won a scholarship to RADA. His roles there included Banquo in Macbeth, in which, according to the stage, he showed integrity in an eloquent performance. And he was also presented to the Queen Mother after his performance as the Devil in Adam at RADA's new theatre, the Vanbrugh, in 1954, the year he graduated. Whilst there, he won the Forbes Robertson Prize and the Kendall Prize for Best Male Performance, and so upon graduation was already receiving plenty of offers. The one he took up at the start of 1955 was at the Oxford Playhouse, working under future Sir Peter Hall. By the middle of the year, though, he was at the Old Vic as part of an ensemble that featured future Doctor Who guest stars Derek Francis, John Woodvine, Ronald Allen and John Fraser. He was flamboyant even this early in his career. His father owned a Rolls-Royce that he never drove, so Nesbitt Jr used it as his mode of transport, even at drama school or when playing small parts in theatre, including the Old Vic. So even if the roles he was playing weren't very impressive, the roles he arrived in was. He first worked as Derry Nesbitt, but this moniker was short-lived, and by 1958, when he appeared in Shadow of Heroes at the Piccadilly Theatre with Peggy Ashcroft and Emlyn Williams, he was, and thereafter remained, Derren. By now, though, he'd broken into television, playing opposite star William Russell in The Adventures of Sir Lancelot in 1956 and 57. When Russell accidentally clocked him over a balcony and he did an unplanned fall and survived, the producers realised that such a tough lad was not only useful for action, but also 75% cheaper to hire than a stuntman, and so young Derry picked up a number of gigs on that show, appearing in 14 episodes in all. He also took uncredited roles in films that have endured, such as A Night to Remember and Behemoth the Sea Monster, 1958 and 59 respectively. He also played eight different roles over two years in TV's William Tell. He was beginning to get a reputation for tough guy roles and snagged himself some attention when appearing in an episode of The Verdict is Yours as a young man accused of hitting his girlfriend's father. Roles as a hard-as-nails teddy boy and a wrestler quickly followed in Probation Officer and The Blood Fight. The latter found him training hard for the piece's extensive bout scenes, no stunt doubles allowed, for what he described as the toughest role thus far in his career. The play, with an anti-racist undertone, got some good notices, although the stage felt that any honours should go to its young star. Darren Nesbitt, whose first live TV this is, gave a sensitive, thoughtful performance. He showed certain subtleties which would justify a better part in the future. In response to this piece in the stage, he contacted the paper to tell them that he was indeed climbing the dramatic ladder, as they'd hoped. His big screen work initially took the tough guy route too. In the classic 1958 film Room at the Top, he is thug in fight on towpath. But the roles got better in smaller pictures, and in minor but not without merit supporting picture Life in Danger, co-written by Malcolm Hulk no less, he plays an enigmatic, mysterious stranger believed by a village to be an escaped child killer, and receives top billing for his efforts. Having been spotted in The Verdict Is Yours by hotshot producer Irving Allen, he was given a decent role as a likeable hoodlum in 1960s light-hearted prison film In The Nick, alongside such eclectic talents as Anthony Newley, Ian Hendry and um, Bernie Winters. By 1960, the general tenor of the press reporting around him was that this was a young actor with a subtle, naturalistic style who was deserving of better roles. While decent TV parts began to be the default, he popped up on the big screen too in featured supporting roles, notably Basil Dearden's blackmail thriller Victim in 1961, which helped to consolidate his image as a smiling villain. He was appearing on stage this year too, notably in Brighton, opposite Anna Neagle in Nothing Is For Free, playing yet another unpleasant character. And this was a year his personal life took in a landmark as well, when he married the actress Anne Aubrey, with whom he'd worked on In the Nick. 
he enjoyed hefty contributions to smaller pictures, giving a good account of himself as the lead in 1962's heist thriller Strongroom, for example, and was becoming a regular television face. So he was a well-known actor when Doctor Who came calling, and although he wasn't the title character in Marco Polo, he was its joint highest paid guest star. TV veteran Martin Miller matched him. The rest of the 60s was spent consolidating this tough guy image and building up a very healthy TV CV, including main guest turns in Danger Man, Softly Softly, The Troubleshooters, Man in a Suitcase and The Prisoner, in which he is a charming, charismatic, slightly boyish number two in the not essential but enjoyable episode It's Your Funeral, which serves as a Marco Polo reunion as it also features Mark Eden and Martin Miller in the cast, which made up for the fact that series star and producer Patrick McGowan was, according to Nesbitt, and I quote, an asshole. Nesbitt's success during this era can be attributed in part to his tendency to give an understated naturalism to his roles, especially his villainous ones, refusing to chew the scenery when studded menace will do. He also has a habit of mixing his lines about, introducing broken speech mannerisms into the dialogue to make them sound like real-life talking rather than a script. He was rather ahead of his time in this way, and the fact that he was blonde-haired, blue-eyed and good-looking did him no harm either. 1969 found him playing the memorable role of German officer von Harpen in Where Eagles Dare, opposite Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. Another villain, though Nesbitt said later he never thought of the roles he was most associated with as bad guys. They are simply people who react to their environment in a way that is considered socially unacceptable. So they are called bad, but really they are just human. As for von Harpen, he was a very charming man, a very human man who was offered that chance to gain power and he jumped on the bandwagon. A human reaction. I think a lot of people would react the same way if they were given the chance. 1969 also marked the beginning of a great small screen success when Nesbitt was cast in the role of Detective Chief Inspector Jordan in the series Special Branch opposite Wensley Pithy. In an unusual move, the series changed after the ninth episode of season one from black and white to colour and lost Pithy, allowing Nesbitt to ascend to top billing. Special Branch was groundbreaking and spawned many imitators, and it made Nesbitt a household name. He said of his character Jordan, He's an ambitious man, a career man, and he does his job well because he wants to be a success. Nesbitt's own on-screen success, however, meant he was good value for the tabloids. In January 1970, Anne filed for a restraining order against him, which was granted after he'd threatened to kill her allegedly, after she informed him she intended to start divorce proceedings. Mr Nesbitt plays a sadistic character on television and the difficulty seems to be that he has carried that into his private life, alleged the prosecution. By March, Nesbitt and Anne were back together and even though he was, strictly speaking, breaking his restraining order by sipping champagne with his wife in public as they declared their love for each other once more, according to Anne. I am so embarrassed about our reconciliation that I did not dare ring my solicitor to tell him, so I've sent him a registered letter. I do hope he gets it because Darren could go to prison for seeing me. The two starred alongside each other on stage in The Tender Trap, and in the process of this very public validation of their marriage, Darren proved his mettle as a comedy actor too. Despite this, and his success on television, he was actually keener on cinema, the closest medium to creating reality as far as he was concerned. He considered theatre to be a factory. The greatest thrill for me is sitting in a cinema and having the lights go down and the music start, he said. In 1972, he already knew he had enough work to take him into the following year and was living the life of Riley with Anne in Hertfordshire. The only downside to fame and fortune being a number of burglaries. He was well known enough to be a target. He was, after all, literally riding on the crest of a wave, having bought a 50-foot boat cruiser as his lifestyle blossomed. He had some decent film roles to augment the small screen stuff. He played one of the two famous grave robbers in Burke and Hare and was in Innocent Bystanders and Dick Emery's Ooh You Are Awful. And life with Anne 
was on an even keel once more. I've calmed down a lot, he said. All that domestic trouble we had a little while ago is over now. Alas, it wasn't. He had never quite got on with the producers of Special Branch. He claims that they didn't approve of his sideburns, clothing choices and lady-killer interpretation of his role. He also claims that those aspects of his character were what had proved popular with the viewing public and kept the show alive, making Nesbitt difficult to get rid of. However, when the series came back for a third run, after a brief hiatus in 1973, the head honchos were confident enough to give it an overhaul and to carry on without him. In fact, 1973 was an annus horribilis for Nesbitt. He was in his usual post-Yuletide pickle again when he was hauled in front of Stevenage Magistrates Court on counts of causing actual bodily harm after allegedly spanking Anne on the bare buttocks with a leather thong after drunkenly accusing her of seeing another man. He pled guilty and was fined, even though he offered a different version of events, saying that Anne had confessed to seeing another man and that he had felt huge remorse immediately after the spanking. The judge told him to get rid of the thong. Ironically, the following week, he opened in Stratford in the play Lover, and one of his lines was about him being a good religious boy who got a cane across the bottom if he did anything wrong. Naturally, audiences howled with laughter at this. Different times. He didn't mind a laugh, though, and so he published a book, The Amorous Milkman, as if to emphasise his funny side. But, unfortunately, the other side kept surfacing. After finally divorcing Anne in February, he hit the papers again when he was charged with assault and criminal damage after an incident involving her, which resulted in him receiving a cut hand and ankle. This distracted from his next venture, a feature film version of The Amorous Milkman, which he was writing and directing at the time of this altercation, directing on crutches now, thanks to this latest contretemps. Ah, the amorous milkman, shot in 20 days with a budget of £200,000, £60,000 of it his own, 80000 borrowed from friends. Keen to be the man in charge for once, Darren Nesbitt directed and wrote the movie, adapted, let's not forget, from a book he'd written as well, into which he sunk all his money. And he got the backing of some of Soho's more unsavoury characters too. So if it bombs, I'll probably end up at the bottom of some river, he said at the time. It is not recorded whether he took the advice he was given by his friend Ken Russell. The famous director sent him a bottle of champagne on the first day, advising, Drink the bloody thing before 7am, then you won't give a f what happens. Having spent Christmas 1973 with Anne, Nesbitt had been hopeful of a reconciliation with his estranged wife, but he seems to have forgotten his annual January tradition of ending up in front of a judge. Or it had certainly slipped his mind when, having discovered Anne at her friend Peter Bletchley's flat, he smashed the window with a milk bottle, not presumably very amorously, and when the police arrived, Nesbitt and Bletchley were, to quote the officers, locked in combat. Nesbitt's behaviour, he said, was due to him being convinced that Anne and Bletchley were having an affair. He was arrested, fined, and bound over to keep the peace. He had continued to profess his love for Anne and sent her Valentine's cards. He's mad, but he's a smashing bloke. I just want to be left alone for a year or two, said Anne, who told the Sunday Mirror that Nesbitt was enormously talented, egotistical, possessive about me, and great fun to be with. But he's bloody impossible to live with all the time. Perhaps to get away from it all, in 1974 he was at the West End in Not Now Darling with Leslie Phillips, and then toured with Shirley Anfield in the play Wait Until Dark. The amorous milkman, tagline, he gave him much more than a pinter, although some posters featuring a cat licking his lips bore the legend, if only your pussy could talk, just in case you're not sure exactly what you're dealing with here, was finally released in January 1975. Nesbitt may have avoided the law courts, but the one of public opinion was no more lenient to him, and much of the newspaper coverage about the picture emphasised how close it had brought its director to bankruptcy, and in order to avoid that fate, he needed the film to do well. It didn't. If the title hasn't told you enough, 
The film was one of those British sex comedies in vogue at around this time and featured the unlikely melange of star Brendan Price, later Thomas in Doctor Who's The Face of Evil, getting up to his saucy antics as Diana Dawes, Julie Edge, Private Godfrey, Herrick from Underworld, General Grugger and Kikillian pop in to lend a Formica sheen to the tawdry goings-on. The review from the Staffordshire Sentinel is typical of those that it received. If Oscars were awarded for guts, Nesbitt should have at least a dozen for allowing his name to go on the credits, because the amorous milkman is without exception the most appalling load of rubbish and most embarrassingly awful excuse for a film it has ever been my misfortune to see. He was still at a loss regarding the failure of his marriage and declared that I couldn't trust a woman again and I don't want to ever again be emotionally involved with a woman. His woes weren't just personal at this time, and he was finally taken to court by the Inland Revenue. Admitting to debts of nearly £18,000, he was declared bankrupt. He stood outside court after the ruling, puffed on a cigar, and declared, My future has never looked brighter because of the film The Amorous Milkman, which I wrote, produced and directed. It has been an enormous worldwide success, and the question of when I pay my debts is purely academic. Alas, whatever place of academia the debt-paying may have been located, it was clearly in special measures, as it took him until 1983 to be discharged from this bankruptcy. Ultimately, though, he was philosophical about financial matters. His Jewish background had taught him to be. I had a great uncle in Germany, and that whole side of the family is gone, he later remarked. So I thought, this is stupid, Darren. You aren't exactly in a concentration camp. One should not be too self-centred. As soon as you stop moaning to yourself, you repair. He was bruised, though, and so took a hefty slice of time away from the profession to live with his mother in Nice for pretty much five years. Among his only appearances was another sex comedy, The Playbirds, reminding everyone that he was around until he returned to work with Gusto in 1979, taking to the stage in a tour of The Grass is Greener with Patrick McNee and Jennifer Wilson. He started working on television again as well, but the momentum he had created with Special Branch had been interrupted and he was very much now into guest role territory again. He had met his second wife, Sue, when she was deputy stage manager of a play he was performing in Eastbourne. In the mid-80s, he divided his time between weekdays in London in a flat with his daughter with Anne, Kitty, and the weekends living with Sue and their four children under Sue's mother's roof in North Humberside. Putting his bankruptcy behind him, he branched out into theatre promotion, record production and an electronic system for booking concert tickets. Thanks to a certain cachet within the profession, especially from young programme makers with an appreciation of past glories, he gained a certain kudos making cameos in four excursions with the alternative comedy team The Comic Strip, between 1988 and 1993. They liked Ronald Allen too, and those two icons appeared together in a 1990 Bergerac as well, Nesbitt a bad guy once again, beating up Tony Robinson for crimes against accents. Nesbitt kept his hand in with plenty of theatre work as well, touring in an Agatha Christie here and playing a Francis Durbridge there. After the failure of his marriage to Sue, he married an Australian beauty queen and went to work down under where he taught theatre studies at the Northern Rivers Conservatorium of Arts in New South Wales. But that marriage didn't last either, and Nesbitt admits to having had a turbulent personal life, based in part on his inability, he says, to say no. I've always loved women, but in the long run, it's far safer to sleep with a Bengal tiger, which hasn't eaten for six months, than to go to bed with a woman. At the start of the new century, he returned to the Doctor Who universe to play Thomas Dodd in one of the most highly regarded Big Finish adventures, Spare Parts, and he was still appearing on stage until 2005. But then he quietened down a bit, doing the odd screen appearance, but concentrating on his home life and business interests. In 2018, he proved he'd still got it with a blisteringly good performance in the film Tucked, about a terminally ill veteran drag queen on a mission. The film did extremely well at various independent film awards ceremonies and Nesbitt himself received a couple of nominations for Best Actor. Nesbitt has the face of a curdled cherub, wrote the Evening Standard. He's brilliant. Also this century, 
He has been the CEO of the New Era Academy of Drama, one of the leading awards bodies of speech and drama in the UK. He has five children in total and now lives with his fourth wife, Miranda. Miranda had worked with him as a stage manager in the 70s and had held a candle for him for years, finally plucking up the courage to write to him when he was going through his divorce in Australia. She said she'd been in love with me for the last 25 years. I was on the next flight back to Britain. They now live happily together in Woking, Surrey. Mercurial, fascinating, difficult. But whatever Derren Nesbitt got up to off-screen, he was an effective presence in a number of fine British productions and a grafter whose purred villainy in Doctor Who is just one effective turn in a number of enduring productions. I was never ambitious and I took long holidays, he says. I didn't need the money, so I treated my work as a well-paid, enjoyable hobby. I always thought enjoying life was more important. Peter Lawrence Peter Lawrence, who plays the officious vizier, whose constant exhortations that the Doctor kowtow prove extremely bothersome to our hero, was a busy character actor throughout his working life. He was born in either 1925 or 1926, but in later life was always deliberately vague about his age, so it seems only appropriate that we have not quite nailed that down. We do know, however, that he was apparently of Welsh stock. He started his career in the great days of the old music halls. His performance debut came at the precocious age of nine at the Swansea Empire as part of boys' choir Jack Lewis's Singing Scholars. Lewis was a variety act, and the singers were top-hatted and Eton-collared juveniles with pronounced regional accents. It was as part of that troupe that Lawrence appeared in his first film, age 10, The Penny Pool, which was released in 1937. He was a juvenile feed for Arthur Lucan and Kitty McShane, hugely famous live performers at the time. Lucan had a famous character, Old Mother Riley, who was extremely popular. Lawrence considered Lucan and McShane to be his theatrical, adoptive parents. He worked later in Variety, also with the comedian Frank Randall. These shows were a fabulous workout for anyone trying to be a versatile performer, both on and off the stage. I was doing fit-up rep when a boy, often changing plays nightly, and at the age of 16 I once played a 91-year-old man, he recalled later. Fit-up rep was travelling theatre, companies travelling from place to place with mobile productions. He also worked as an assistant stage manager and sold programmes and tickets before the show, as well as being in it. For a spell, Lawrence worked the variety circuit with a partner, as the Peter Brothers, sharing the bill with some of the leading singers and comics of the day, including Carmen Miranda, Tommy Trinder and Anthony Newley. By the mid-fifties, he was doing more and more acting, appearing as one of the three bears, John Schlesinger was another, in the children's show Goldilocks at the Kew Theatre in 1954. And just prior to appearing in Doctor Who, he had been among the cast of musical Pocahontas at the Lyric Theatre, with Sir Colin Thackeray and Professor Brett, uh, Michael Barrington and John Harvey, also in the cast. He had broken into television in 1960, his Welsh background likely getting him through the door to play Idris the Barman in 1960's production of How Green Was My Valley. Who Killed Men and Lorraine, his next TV gig, was similarly Welsh-themed. His variety background also helped to get him into The Arthur Askey Show in 1961, but it wasn't until after Doctor Who in 1964 that the TV work came in steadily. Even then, though, it was very much in supporting roles. In his two episodes of The Saint, for example, he is third local and bartender, until a recurring turn as Detective Inspector Rigby in Crossroads in 1965, and a five-month stint as PC Sam Moneypenny in rural ITV soap opera Weaver's Green in 1966. Zed Cars, Department S, Softly Softly, and Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, uh, playing another policeman in the episode The Smile Behind the Veil, followed, but the 60s was really his TV heyday. The following decade offered slim pickings for him, on the small screen. But that didn't matter, for he was destined to make a unique contribution to the world of theatre. He appeared in Christmas shows and Panto, and he 
and this is a wonderful description from the reviewer, effervesced as a self-promoter in penalty area at the Kingston Theatre in 1977, and showed his versatility playing five roles in A Christmas Carol at the Richmond Theatre in 1978. But his towering achievement began in 1979, when he took over the roles of Jacob and Potiphar in Bill Kenwright's touring production of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat at the Brighton Theatre Royal on Christmas Eve. It was the beginning of a record-breaking run in that role. I've gone on with broken ribs and suffering from pleurisy and pneumonia, he said after his 2,567th consecutive performance. But in a show as marvellous as this, it is unthinkable to miss a performance. It was not until 1984 that he missed a small handful of shows through illness, but by then he had worked with nine Josephs and done two stints with the show at the West End. According to producer Bill Kenwright, As the reputation of the tour grew and grew, so too did the love surrounding this unique man. Theatre managers would inevitably inquire, Is Peter in it? And we returned year after year to his favourite dates. Critics would consistently single out his performance for special praise, and most importantly to him, audiences young and old would welcome him back to their province as one of the family. After a break of four years, when Kenwright was without the touring rights, in the early 1990s, he was back in the show. Kenwright didn't want anyone else to play Jacob, Lawrence's performance having been dubbed a juggernaut of joy by one critic. But ill health was making things difficult, and he fought his illness hard to ensure that he could still be in his rightful place come curtain up at the Theatre Royal Northampton in 1997. His unbeatable tally of Jacob performances got him into the Guinness Book of Records, and to Peter's great pride, was mentioned in Joseph lyricist Sir Tim Rice's autobiography. Kenwright adored Lawrence, which is why he kept him in the show. Never ever want to knock. Peter only found the good in people, and it was his love for all things theatrical and his real joy for the life he lived that made him the extraordinary person he was. He reckoned he'd appeared in over 140 films as well, but we'll never know, as much of this work was uncredited bit part stuff, including his final film, 1979's Murder by Decree. No, Jacob was where he made his real impact. Whilst holidaying in Tunisia, Lawrence suffered a massive heart attack and died there on the 9th of February 1998. His body was flown back and cremated at the West London Crematorium on the 27th. He was 73, not that anyone he knew was aware, so coy had he been about his age. Perhaps the final word should go to his regular employer, Bill Kenwright. He never appeared above the title. He never had the number one dressing room. He never demanded or interested himself in worldly wealth, but he was a star. And for me, he was the brightest star that ever shone in my galaxy. I loved him, and I miss him terribly. I always will. If I did, Ian, I would give you the key. Oh, it's so clever. So tantalising. So frustrating. Of course Marco would give Ian the key. He's a good man. But having proved himself capable of lying, nothing Ian can say now will help him. And Ian is an honourable man too. It's fiendishly clever, this script, using character and benign, decent characters to outmanoeuvre each other, using tools such as trust and honour. Elsewhere, Honesty becomes a disadvantage when Barbara reveals the 20th century Westerner's disapproval of arranged marriage, which makes Marco think that Ian has actually got back not to retrieve the girl, but to find the TARDIS, which is not true, which causes him to send Tigana after them. Ian is actually going to do the right thing, and nobody lies to anybody on this occasion bar Tigana, and he's the one who ends up getting what he wants. The chess match may be over, but the manoeuvring is not. Lucarotti writes the interactions with grace and insight, and the absence of Hartnell means we get to experience some lovely speeches from Eden that otherwise wouldn't have made it into the episode. But the main thing about this instalment, clever manoeuvring and deft character writing aside, 
is that it's a joke. It's all one big joke. The episode title means there's a punchline waiting to happen, and happen it does, when mighty Kubla Khan hobbles on, beset with gout. It's a terrific gag, making this powerful and notorious figure a tetchy old man riddled with aches and pains. And it means that Hartnell too needs to be a somewhat infirm and crotchety comic relief in order that both men bond, and the travellers therefore evade the uh, <clears throat> wrath of Khan. Even the music is in on the joke, as the two old men go out in sympathetic goutery, surely the most deliberately comic scene yet conceived for the series. Eat your heart out, Dennis Spooner. It's John Lucarotti, the philosophical historical guy, who went after Who's first belly laughs. Oh, and it must be born with dignity. Doctor Who, Mighty Kubla Khan, featured Xenia Merton as Ping Cho, Tati Lemko as Quichu, Gabor Baraka as Wang Lo, Peter Lawrence as the Vizier, Martin Miller as Kubla Khan, and Basil Tang as the office foreman. The title music was by Ron Grainer and the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, the incidental music by Tristram Carey, the story editor was David Whittaker, the designer Barry Newbury, and the associate producer was Mervyn Pinfield. Coming next, the first major sequence to be committed to film for this story forms its exciting climax, and Doctor Who's first great lost classic comes to an end. That's next time on Doctor Who, Too Much Information. Next episode, Assassin at Peking. Or, oh Doctor, it's me back, gammon. Too Much Information, Mighty Kubla Khan, was written and presented by me, Toby Haydoke. With special thanks to Patrick Mulkern, and thanks to Richard Bignall, David Brunt, Rob Dawson, Peter Crocker, Graham Kibble-White, Kralthal, Darren Nesbitt, Peter Ware, Reese Williams and Boris Hussain. Additional voices were by Chrissy Bone and Shirley Houston. The serious consultant is Richard Bignall. And the music is specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, far too much information that is for now exclusive to patrons who also qualify for bonus material, early releases and other exclusives, as well as pictures of my dog. Patrons are also nearly six months ahead with my Happy Times and Places podcast. So if you want to hear convention organiser and the Queen of Liverpool fandom, Erica Lear, cake herself in mud at the prospect of a heated time with Peter Davison in the caves of Androzani, or internet sensation from down under, Josh Snares, get drunkenly gladiatorial about the virtues of the Romans, then pop over there right now and have your credit card ready. That sounds a bit scary, doesn't it? Don't worry, it's £3 a month. References Most of the information herein, as with every too much information, comes from going back to source and sifting through the original scripts and documents which have been shared from various sources. You know who you are, and thank you. Patrick Mulkin wrote three of the best research articles about a particular story, going into detail by poring over paperwork with its director, Warris Hussain, over three issues in Doctor Who magazine from issue 483 in 2015, and they're about Marco Polo, so I'm very lucky. I've also contacted Patrick, and he's been extremely generous with materials and insight, and to think I was too scared initially, and he's been so helpful. He also provided some additional paperwork which clarified some things and contradicted others. And latterly, Warris has made his diaries public, and that has cleared up some things and provided new information. Some of it just too late for previous instalments. Gah! And hooray! And gah! Again. Simon Guerrier is doing some paperwork collation of this era of the show and making it much easier, therefore, to navigate. So huge thanks to him for sharing everything he's done. And to David Brunt for similar and related efforts. Both men have books coming out. I urge you to buy them.
I have also consulted various reference works for this podcast, Doctor Who A Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth and Mark Wright, with contributions from Jonathan Morris, Alistair McGowan and Richard Atkinson, and much of it based, of course, on those fantastic archives features by Andrew Pixley. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's Complete History of Time Travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference, and Rob Dawson has provided me with a really useful tool for getting certain facts at the touch of a button. I also subscribe to various internet newspaper resources, and before I go, the oft-mentioned but limelight-avoiding David Brunch is one of the undersung heroes of Doctor Who research. I've never met him, yet he's quick as a flash to answer a query or provide a document without ever asking for anything in return. Legend. I walk in the shadows of giants. Giants who, if you ask very nicely, will lend you their special giant shoes, and then it's not embarrassing when you stand in said footsteps. I would also like to thank the patrons who make these podcasts possible. And they include Ruben Herfindahl, Stephen Moffat, Frank Shales, Risto Matisarillo, Barry Platt, Adam Parker, Graham Knott, Kevin Murdoch, Roland Moore, Nathan Martin, Philip Marsh, Ian K. McLachlan, Joe Llewellyn, Ian Key, Chris Hyam, Siobhan Galichon, Jason Gorman, Paul Dunn, Chris Dunford Kelk, John Deere, Grant Davidson, Richard Chalk, Paul Cook, Jenny at Blue Box 99, Nigel Bromley, Tim Arding, David Trainier, Nick Tedston, Neil Tate, Richard Straw, Gavin McLean, Christopher Meredith, Rob Leonard, Ronald Hayden, Peter Harness, James Cudet-Smith, and Peter Burns. <laughs> <laughs>